Well, it's good to be here and I'm honoured to uh, bring God's word. Good to hear of people going to Japan. Just 10 days ago I was preaching in Japan. And it's good to sing this uh, hymn we're singing later and we sang yesterday because of uh, uh, the, uh, the unfinished task. Because a friend of mine's great uncle wrote that hymn, the original words. So it's, uh, it's great to see it being revived this year. Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, your word is light and life. We pray that you may shine its light in our hearts, that we may live by it and under it, and for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Some countries are a monarchy ruled by a king or queen. Others are a democracy ruled by the people, so-called. But I live in Malaysia, and Malaysia is a kleptocracy. Uh, according to the United States Ministry of Justice, it is the world's biggest kleptocracy that is ruled by thieves. The, gov the Prime Minister, in particular, uh, is accused by, of having basically stolen or orchestrated the stealing of billions and billions of dollars from Malaysia through his uh, stepson and various friends and cronies and so on. He, of course, just keeps silent while billions of dollars of assets are frozen in Singapore and the United States. In Malaysia, uh, the trend, I think, a dangerous trend in a way, is that the churches are very political in what they say, and unitedly so. I've only met one person who votes for the government in Malaysia, one Christian, that is, who votes for the government. And, uh, and what I find in Malaysia, the tendency is to, to speak against the government all the time. So just two or, th two or three weeks ago, maybe, I was uh, preaching for a Bible conference on the east coast of the peninsula of Malaysia on the book of Esther. And at the end of it all, different from what I'd been saying, the pastor got up and said, we thank you for speaking. This reminds us how we need to pray for our government and change the government. And the danger of that is that the church too often sounds self-righteous. And too often, in fact, the, the weak things of the society infiltrate the church. Malaysia is the only apartheid country officially left in the world. But that racism infiltrates the church all the time. But yet so often the church is blind to that and speaks against the society and it sounds so self-righteous. The, the church keeps wanting God to intervene, to bring judgment and bring punishment against those in the government, the prime minister not least, uh, for all the wrongs, corruption, and uh, kleptocratic behavior that's, uh, that's so common in our country. And yet in calling for God and praying for God to bring such justice, the sounds of self-righteousness keep ringing in my ears. We often want God to act in justice so long as we're not found to be guilty. And yet so often we're blind to our own sins. Israel was in danger of that as they prepared to conquer the promised land. And that's how Deuteronomy 9, in effect, begins. Moses is warning them of the sin of self-righteousness. 
he says in verse 4 of chapter 9, uh, do not say, literally do not say, in your heart. And it's the third uh, warning of saying something in your heart. In chapter 7 it was about uh, pride and in chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 7 was about um, uh, the, the antagonism of the nations and fear. Chapter seven was about uh, 8 was about pride. And now perhaps is self-righteousness. Do not say in your heart, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. But the argument doesn't quite sort of uh, follow the, the, the expected course because the next line says, no, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations. Doesn't that therefore mean that we're righteous? No, verse 5 reiterates, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. And then in verse 6, the sting in the tail perhaps. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness. The third time in three verses that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess for or because you are a stiff-necked people. Now it raises questions of fairness. If the nations that are being dispossessed are wicked, what about Israel? In the ancient world, of course, you would think that if your God has given you victory, you were better than another nation in some way or other. But here the conclusion, the sting in the tail is, for you are a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people. The, the picture, of course, is of an animal with a yoke that resists the farmer trying to guide it in a particular direction to plough the field and so on. Here is Israel being warned about self-righteousness. You are going to conquer this land. You're going to dispossess nations, but it's not because you're righteous. In effect, it's a merciful act of God. It's God keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as verse 5 makes clear. And as, in fact, Deuteronomy keeps echoing from chapter to chapter throughout the whole book. You are not a righteous people. Do not be self-righteous. Maybe you could say that you're not even better than the nations that are going to be dispossessed. Certainly, there are strong warnings throughout the book do not be like those nations in their idolatry and immorality. And you are a stubborn or stiff-necked people. Why this gift of land? Because God is keeping a promise. Because God is faithful. What he promised to Abraham 600 or so years before this, God is now about to fulfill in the conquest of the land. In some ways, it doesn't seem quite fair. If Israel is no better than the other nations, why should they have the land? The other nations deserve the punishment they're about to receive. Israel does not deserve the land. But it is God's faithfulness. It's not a neat statement simply of justice. If it were, of course, in the end, we wouldn't be here. Having said that there are stiff-necked people, uh, God speaks through Moses to demonstrate the proof of that, if you like. It's a demolition job in the verses that follow on the case of Israel's self-righteousness. The summary is verse 7. Remember this and never forget 
how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, that is at Sinai, uh, and even at now at Moab, you have been rebellious against the Lord. That's a fairly damning indictment. It's not that Israel's rebellion or murmuring or grumbling has just recently begun, but it began the day they left Egypt, the day of their rescue, the day of their redemption, the day of their salvation. If you read in Exodus, it may not be literally the day, but even before they get to Mount Sinai, within the first six weeks or so of their rescue in Exodus, they're grumbling and complaining and murmuring and rebelling against God. And then having heard God's voice and lived at Sinai for a year, as they then travel to the border, they grumble and complain again. And at the border, they refuse to do what God wants. And then for nearly 40 years in the wilderness, they continue again and again. This is the damning summary. And Moses gives one particular example. Uh, Literally, verse 8 begins, even at Horeb. That is, at the very place where you would expect Israel to be on its best behavior. It failed dismally and dramatically. Even at Horeb, uh, Deuteronomy's name, of course, for Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments. They could see atop the mountain the smoke. They could hear the voice of God. They're as, as close to God as they'd ever been in such a privileged position. And yet there and then, they failed. You aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. And then Moses gives a summary of that account, a reminder of what happened. Remember, he's speaking to the next generation. Uh, Many of them were children at the time, under the age of uh, 20 or so. Uh, Others, perhaps the majority probably, have been born subsequent. And yet, he keeps using the second person. He doesn't say, when I was there, your parents, your parents did this or that. It's always you. You rebelled. Because generation by generation, we're the same. We are equally culpable before God. It's hard to imagine a worse sin than this. Blatant idolatry, the making of golden calves. And it's hard to imagine a worse sin in such a privileged position. You imagine something like your wedding night. You've been looking forward to the end of the day and all the people disappear. You go to your room with the person that you've just married and and as you get there, you realize that you've left behind your marriage certificate. You go and get it, you come back, you enter the room and there is the person you've just married in bed with someone else. And you tear up the marriage certificate. And that's in effect sort of what's going on here. God has established an exclusive relationship with Israel. And at the very point of establishing that relationship at Mount Sinai, giving them all the laws, they go and worship golden calves. Moses is still on top of the mountain. God's still speaking in effect. And they go and worship golden calves. And it's right that God's anger was aroused enough to destroy you, as verse 8 puts it. It's not an uncontrollable rage, a short temper like I sometimes have when things go wrong, which often is the case. I inherited it from my father who used to throw things out the garage window, smashing the window time and time again. It's not that sort of uncontrollable rage. 
it's, it's a, an anger that is aroused by rebellion, a lack of faith, disobedience. It's a righteous anger. His wrath doesn't mean he hates them, but it's the right response of a just God. And as we know well, I suspect, God disowns Israel to Moses on the mountain. Uh, he says to Moses, he tells him, of course, what's happened. And he says, go down from here at once in verse 12, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. But that's not the normal language. These are my people who I brought out of the land of Egypt. But of course, in a football analogy, God is handballing them over to Moses. They're your people. I'm disowning them. They're not mine. So leave me alone so that I may destroy them, blot their name out from under heaven, and start again with you, Moses. Moses goes down the mountain, smashes the tablets, the relationship, the marriage, if you like, is over, torn up. It's ended just as it's begun. The ink on the tablets, well, it's the fingerprint on the tablets, is not yet dry, we might say, to mix metaphors. And they're smashed. And it's all over. Now this, of course, was not an isolated incident. Verses 22 to 24 give another summary. The point is not this one episode, this is the worst, but it's one of a regular pattern. Just as verse 7 said, from the day you came out of Egypt till today, so in verses 22 to 24, you made the Lord angry at Taberah, at Massah, at Kibroth Hadavah, and when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, Another time that was also recounted in chapter 1. All of those are mentioned in Numbers as well. Moses doesn't give the details here. They know about them. They know what went wrong. The point is not just once at Horeb, but all the time you've been stubborn, stiff-necked since the day you came out of Egypt. And Moses has given the worst example here. There are no grounds for self-righteousness at all. Israel is persistently, deliberately, rebellious with serious sin. And yet God perseveres with this people. Why? Why will they conquer the land? Not, yes, the other nations are wicked. Yes, they are being punished for their sins. But it's not because you're righteous. It's not because you're righteous. It's not because you're righteous. Three times he said it. At the end of this chapter, Moses prays. The prayer is if you like, taken out of the narrative and put at the end in part to highlight, in part because the first point is really about the stubborn rebellious sin. But actually in the flow of the story, Moses would have prayed in verses 18 and 19. And, it, and it's touched on there. But now we get the content of prayer. And whenever the Bible gives us the content of somebody's prayer, that content is for us to learn from. And Moses prays, as we well know, as is recorded in Numbers, but so in detail here again. I lay prostrate before the Lord 40 days and nights. I prayed to the Lord in verse 26, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance, that you redeem by your great power. This is bold praying. God told Moses to leave him alone and said, Moses, they're your people whom you... And Moses is saying, no, God, I'm handballing them back to you. They're your people. You redeemed them. You brought them out. So what Moses is in effect saying here, and five times he uses your in these verses, 
stressed, in fact, to recounter verse 12. So he's actually almost as if he's correcting God, dare I say it. But he's saying in effect to God, God, don't let your work be in vain. You redeem these people. Don't destroy them. He's not saying, oh God, look, they've had a bad day. The wilderness is a pretty tough place, you know. It's not the world's most livable city, Kadesh Barnea. <laughs> it's even less livable than lovely Japan. And he's not giving them an excuse. He's not saying, God, they'll be better next time. He's not saying that either. He doesn't say, this generation's a bit better than their parents. Give them a second go. Not at all. There's no excuse here. Don't destroy them. They're your people. Don't let your work be in vain, we might say. But then he adds to that. He strengthens his argument, so to speak, in verse 27. Remember your servants, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, remember is not just what you need to do at the end of semester before you face an exam. Sort of a whole list of obscure facts in your head, a sort of cognitive memory. Remembrance in Scripture, when God remembers and when we're called to remember, is always about action, about doing something, about obedience for us, and God actually now putting into plan or bringing to effect what he said he would do. So when it says, remember Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, it's saying to God, God, be faithful to the promises that you make. Now, we know that God is faithful. We know that he keeps his promises, and Moses knew that, but he prays that God would do it. We might think the prayer could almost be redundant, but not really. We ought to be praying that God is faithful to his promises made in Scripture to us. So overlook the stubbornness, the end of verse 27 says. Again, no excuse. And then verse 28. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. And both those things are manifestly untrue. It's not that God is not able, and it's not that God hates them. In fact, his love for them is declared a few times in this book, in the next chapter, for example. Now, here is a, an aspect of prayer that I want us to pay careful attention to. One of the key aims of God is not merely the rescue of his own people so that they may live in the world's most livable country, uh, the land of milk and honey, and that they might have a good life and live long and everything goes hunky-dory for them. But bigger than that, as the promises to Abraham make clear, is that Israel in the promised land under the blessing of God would attract the nations to God, that the nations of the world will be blessed through them. And here I think Moses is reflecting something of that. God, if you punish your people as they deserve, the other nations will not understand who you are. They will not come to you. They'll think you're bad and incapable. So God have mercy. The mercy of God for his people is for their benefit. But the mercy of God for his people is also for the benefit of the nations. Israel didn't understand that by and large in the Old Testament. And too often our problem is we don't see it either. Too often we think mission begins with the Great Commission. But here is God's ongoing view of the world that he wants to win through his people. But his people fail. 
Time and again they failed. If you keep reading the pages of the Old Testament, you know they fail time and again. It's so rare that someone from another nation comes because of Israel to God. They might come because of what God does, like Rahab, the prostitute, but they rarely come because of what Israel does because Israel fails so often. But as we saw yesterday, so for us today, the challenge to us in part, as we think about God and this whole world, is our own godliness, uh, character, as Andrew said, he wanted prayer for. So rightly, it's not about our competence, firstly, but it's about our godly, faithful obedience to God that will be attractive to this world. But we don't deserve it, but we fail, and we, we don't deserve God's blessing. And a tragedy is not a tragedy for us, for the church, but it's that the world does not see. And how often that is sadly so much the case today. Each year for the past uh, seven years I've lived in Asia, uh, I've taught in either or both of uh, India and Pakistan. I'll be in Pakistan in three weeks' time. And, and tragically, so much of the church of Pakistan is infiltrated with corruption, as is indeed much of the church in India. Now, of course, it's not universal. And there are many, many godly leaders of churches in those two countries, but they are the exception too often. Why would you want to be a Christian? Why would you be attracted to the true living God when the church itself is so corrupt and reflects merely society's poor standards? That is sadly a bit of a danger I see in Malaysia. This call to sort of for God to act for the government and get rid of the government and so on, which sounds so self-righteous. And, and too often there's a lack of looking at, are we actually attractive as a church to the world? Now, it's not the sum total of mission, of course, but it's an overlooked aspect of mission. That is, we are to be godly. We are to be faithfully obedient to God, reflect godly character, Generosity, as the laws of Deuteronomy will show. Love for others, love and care for the poor and the alien and so on. And in part, not just for their benefit or for ours, but so that we, the church, which of course is the continuation in a way of Israel of the Old Testament, is an attraction for the world to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy that you extend to us and to your people over the centuries, a mercy that we do not deserve, but a mercy that attracts others to you. We pray that we may live godly lives, that the church of Jesus Christ throughout this world will be a beacon, a light, an attraction to the world, that they will see your character at work and come to you. And we ask this for Jesus' name. Amen. Today, many ethnic groups all over the world still have not heard the gospel of our Lord. We are facing a task unfinished, that we should go to all the world with kingdom hope, because no other name but Jesus Christ, our Lord, has the power to save. Please be outstanding as we reorient our life toward the Lord's commission and say, facing that's amazing.